Hi, Steve Addison here for the Movements Podcast. The podcast for people who want to multiply disciples and churches everywhere. Today we'll be talking to Cindy, who's a movement pioneer and catalyst in Asia. You'll find uh, Cindy on the web at dmmsfrontiermissions.com. So I grew up in West Africa, grew up in missions and uh, caught my passion for the unreached from my father, who was a missionary pioneer in West Africa. And so I grew up with missions in my heart. But um, my husband and I felt called to work among the unreached when we were um, studying in college. Both of us were headed for secular degrees and then felt like God spoke to us really about the needs of the unreached. So when we were in our discipleship training school with YWAM uh, in 1990 in Colorado, that's when we really felt the Lord speaking to us about the nation of Nepal. At that time, Nepal was, um, the the church was still underground. Uh, Democracy was just coming to Nepal and a very, very unreached, almost untouched kind of nation. And So we went to Nepal knowing that we wanted to work among the unreached, that we wanted to start a church. But at that time, our our understanding of what what God was doing was just that we would go and we would plant a church among the unreached. And that was kind of where we were at. Um, But about a year into our time there in Nepal, just as we were getting a good handle on the language and beginning to build relationships in a village area outside of the capital city, um, George Patterson came uh, to Nepal. George was one of the pioneer leaders in multiplication and church plant, church multiplication. And yeah, George, he's a, he's a hero of mine, Cindy. Yeah, I've interviewed him a couple of times. Great man. Yeah. So George came um, together with uh, my current leader, the leader of Wyoming Friendship Missions right now. His name's Kevin Sutter. And George and Kevin came to Nepal and did a seminar for the few of a handful of us that were attempting church planning efforts there. And um, that was the first time I really heard about the, the idea that, oh, we shouldn't be thinking about just planting one church. But we want to think about churches that will multiply and that we could plant churches that planted churches that planted churches. And that's really when the the vision and the dream began. But um, as with probably many of us, there's there's been this evolving and process of what's happened in the world of what we now call disciple making movements or church planning movements, which we didn't even have those terms back then. Um, that that's happened as we've all learned and grown in this process. But that was really where it began uh, with listening here. We started using some of his materials and experimenting with those as we started our first church plant there in Nepal. And how, how did that go? Yeah, well, it was uh, like the mountains of Nepal. It was an up and down around the <laughs> the bend kind of journey of learning and growing and trusting God. And you know, I always uh, I always tell people that when a movement happens, it's because God intervened. It's not because we did things right. Because you know, we certainly made lots and lots of mistakes and didn't do everything by the book. Uh, we did what we knew how to do to the best of our ability. 
But there were a lot of things that we didn't really understand about how movements grow, especially at that time. Um, and yet God worked. And we uh, we started in this valley area. It was about an area about three hours outside of the capital city. We rented a little room there and would stay there on the weekends and began to work with uh, a national team as well, national partners that joined us and we just started started sharing about Jesus, sharing our story and tea, tea stalls and um, with people that were nearby. And slowly we, we came in contact. It took us about three months, Steve, at that time to meet anyone who had ever heard of Jesus. That's how unreached it was at that time. And um, when you look at Nepal today, that's amazing because there are so many believers in Nepal now. But at that time, it was a very, very unreached area. And um, But we we finally found one man who had um, come to the Lord while he was working as a laborer in Bhutan, a very young believer, but wanted to know more. And so we began to do a Bible study with him. And then with a, a group of young men who were probably about 15 or 16 years old that gathered in the um, in his his home, his living room, kind of up above um, his little tea stall. And we started studying with them, practicing the things that we now call Discovery Bible Study. Back then, we didn't really know that's what that was called. But participatory, you know, uh, study of the word with them and... Um, and they started growing in their faith and um, wanted to follow Jesus and wanted to know him more, began to reach out to others. But then it came time for us to go on our, our first leave uh, to return to the States for our fundraising. And, and again, this was back before the days of Facebook or WhatsApp or any of those ways of communicating. Um, and so we, we just, uh, said to them, you know, this is yours and this is your valley and your people. And if it's up to you to reach them and we're going to be gone for a while, but, but this great commission that Jesus has given us for you. And so we, we prayed for them. We blessed them to go and make disciples of their own people. And, and then we, we returned back to the, the States for our, you know, our leave and, um, prayed and hoped that they would stick, that we had, you know, shared enough, discipled enough that they wouldn't fall away. And uh, we were gone for several months. I think it was about six months and returned to Nepal, not knowing if any of them would still be following Jesus, you know, with, um, we just had no idea, had, had no contact. And we returned back and, um, you know, got in touch with them and they shared with us that, you know, what you told us to do, we've done. And there are 30 people who are ready to be baptized. So can you come and baptize them? Oh. And we said, that is amazing. You guys are awesome. But no, we can't baptize them. You guys have to baptize them. They're your disciples, but we'll teach you how to do that. And uh, that was really how that first little church was born in that valley area. And uh, they did. Those young men, um, you know, baptized their their fathers and mothers and people they brought to the Lord. And um, about 30 people were baptized that first day by them. And 
And then we just continued training them how to multiply that and um, see see those groups grow and see that little church that has started begin to start others. And it was just amazing, you know, to see how these young men grew as apostolic leaders. And um, within just a few years, that that work had multiplied to um you know, over a thousand and then up to 2000 and 30, 40 churches that were started and were spreading and they were going to other districts of Nepal. And um, yeah, it was just, it was amazing to see what God did, but you see, it really was a God thing. I think one of the things that we learned early on was to not be in front you know, to really let it be theirs. And I remember George talking about back then um, and training us in, you know, being a midwife rather than the parent, you know? And I, I think that was such a key thing that helped us to get the right DNA was to really let it be theirs. It wasn't our church. It was their church. It was their, um, it was their valley. It was their their nation, you know, and we were there to come alongside, to be in the background and to mentor and disciple, but, uh, and to support and, um, yet not to, um, not to lead from the front. And I think that was one of the things that was key for us. Um, I think we also learned that God, God works in spite of us. You know, our language wasn't amazing. We were, you know, we made, lots of mistakes um, and did things, you know, in ways that I wouldn't do them today. And yet God, God loves people and he wants to reach them. And if we'll just put ourselves out there and obey, he will work if we don't give up. You know, I think that was another thing we learned is don't, don't give up. And um, as, as that work began, it, you know, it didn't depend on us. It really depended on them and our role was to come alongside. Just that God did, I think he brought the right people to us. And some of the people that we thought were going to be the people he would work through weren't. You know, and we had to learn to not invest too much, you know, not put all our eggs in one basket. I think when we were first starting in that valley area, we we met some people that we thought were really um good influencers they were heads of households they were people that listened to our story and welcomed us Um, but they weren't ready to make a commitment to follow Jesus and um, they yeah we we had to be willing to go through some of those relationships where people um, maybe wanted to know us because we were foreigners or you know, there was something they wanted to gain and to sort of sort through that and not be discouraged by that, but um, to keep looking for those people who are really hungry. And um, I think another thing we learned is that God can use young people. Um, At that point, we were, I think, especially looking for older, you know, influencers, you know, a village head or someone like that who would come to the Lord and would bring a lot of others with them. And that certainly happens in many places. But in our story, it was young men who were um, in the Nepal context because they were elder sons in their families, though they were young, they had influence in their families and their families looked to them for um, 
new things that should be embraced, you know? And so they, their families did follow them into the faith, but we wouldn't have, we kind of stumbled upon that, you know, rather than, um, than knowing that ahead of time as, as it began to grow, I think we had to continue to, to train them to stay simple um, the temptation was very strong to, you know, um, to bring in, even though in Nepal, the church was still just brand new out of, you know, it, it's amazing how rapidly uh, church structures can kind of become prominent. And so that was something that we we really emphasized with the leadership that, you know, every everyone needs to stay involved in disciple making and it's not, you know, not to separate. And, you know, even, even those who did a discipleship training school with that, you know, short three or six month training were suddenly the ones who were more qualified, you know, Mm -hmm. than the average person. And so we had to kind of fight against that as we did leadership training and really encourage them to um, appoint leaders who were, elders in the sense of the biblical qualifications, but not not look to education, not look to um, those who've done more training, Christian training. And uh, that was something that was important, I think, as we saw things multiply. And they did. They had some amazing, uh, still have some amazing leaders who were just men and women of God. Um, They they moved in power and they saw the Holy Spirit work, miracles happen, demons cast out. And um, to identify those people who had that sort of apostolic anointing and were were moving with God as men and women of God rather than looking towards training. And, um, but it it was something we had to be really intentional about because the pull was there. Uh, As it grows, were there also outside influences saying, look, we we can give you a salary or we'd like your church to join our movement, all those sorts of things. (laughs) Absolutely. Those are, those are always there, it seems. And um, so, and we did, we had some people that left and joined other organizations, things like that. Um, But one of the things that uh, Victor Chowdhury said that I've always remembered, I don't know if you know Victor from India, another amazing movement leader and father in movements. Um, But he, he said, you know, if you make sons and daughters, no one can steal them. But if you have workers, they're easy to buy, you know, <laughs> just offer them a higher salary. And I think that was something that we really took to heart, you know, is that these were, you know, we were family and invested deeply in relationships with the leaders. And um, and we didn't lose those people. They, you know, it's not that they were loyal to us, but the relationships were strong and they had bought into the vision and they had a good understanding of the new Testament principles. And so they didn't want to run off and do something in a way that they'd get a bigger salary, but they wouldn't be, um, be able to see multiplication like what they were seeing. Mm-hmm. Well, what, what happened next in, in your journey? Yeah. So that that work continued to grow, and we um, we stayed engaged in training and mentoring, coaching the leaders. But we then uh, started training other church planners and Nepali church planning teams to go 
through Parliament, uh, be involved in starting work in new areas. And then um, that started to take off and we, we were able to see about 30 church planning teams raised up to go across Nepal, all, all made of nationals. And um, then we lost our visa and uh, we <laughs> uh, suddenly, um, and it's still a bit of a mystery what actually happened with our visa situation, other than to say that in hindsight, we know God uh, led us. You know, it's not, it wasn't a word of the Lord, but it was a, a closed door that led us to cross the border into India. And uh, at that time, I was serving as the leader of YWAM French Missions for, um, for that part of India and Nepal. And uh, so we, we crossed the border with our three kids and, um, yeah, kind of suddenly and hated India at first. It was huge culture shock. We had so bought into Nepal and loved Nepal and we spoke the language well. Our three kids had been born there. It was, you know, the it was where we thought we'd spend the rest of our lives. But we crossed over into India and then God began to open our eyes to see the people of India with his eyes. And um, so we began doing what we do. Now making disciples wherever we went and training uh, training people to be disciple makers and I guess that's one of the life lessons I would say even today as we're here sitting in Minnesota you know I'm not able to go back to the country I normally live in and the place I want to be but uh, somebody asked me the other day what um you know, how do you cope with this and I said you know it, it goes back to I know who I am and what I'm called to do is to be a disciple maker. And we can do that anywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can do that anywhere in the world. We can do that anytime. And, you know, our, our calling, our core calling is not to live in a particular location. But our core calling is to be a disciple maker. Be someone who obeys Jesus' command to make disciples, who make disciples and see his kingdom come. And so we moved over to India and we started making disciples there, learning a new language. Uh, We started learning Bengali and uh, started working in slum communities in our city there across the border. And again, doing something similar um, uh, in a whole different context um, of uh, launching a disciple-making movement there. Um, Again, we had some, a lot of failures, a lot of ups and downs, but learned a lot of lessons and did, we're able to see groups start that began to multiply there. We really felt like the Lord was speaking to us about the slum communities and uh, the poor and needy as well in our city, the urban poor. And so that was a bit of a new context because people groups were very mixed in the slums. And uh, so we, we started by doing a, an assessment, um, meeting community leaders and finding out what were the strengths and um, assets that they had and also the areas where they felt they needed um, help. And one of the things that they brought up were, were the needs of widows and the needs of um, malnourished babies uh, was another thing we found. And so we started going door to door um, doing uh, nutrition 
counseling with uh, families who had small children and weighing the babies. And that was kind of the way that we built relationships in the community. And um, through that, and this is a, a fun story I like to tell, through that we met uh, a family that were, um, they were Bihari, actually. We met this family and the, they had a baby who was seven months old and only weighed seven pounds, um, very severely malnourished um, child. That's a birth weight for many healthy babies. And so she was very, very sick. Her name was Kusi, a little baby uh, girl. Kusi means happy. And um, she was she was just skin and bones. And so we we started going and talking to the family about how they, you know, we gave some baby formula and did different things to try to help them. And uh, right about that time, one of my closest colleagues was killed in a, an accident. She was um, hit an army truck hit an auto rickshaw that she was riding in and she, she died. And so it was a, a great tragedy that happened. And of course I was devastated and, you know, all kinds of things related to that loss. But um, I came back from her funeral and remembered this little baby. And I thought this baby's going to die if I don't go and check on this child. And so I went to the home of, you know, this little home in the slums to check on this baby in the midst of that grief and pain. And um, the baby had lost more weight. And so I called my husband and said, I think, I think we need to bring this child home. And um, he agreed to that. And so we brought little Kusi into our home and um, asked her father if we could if we could help him with, with his baby and we didn't want to adopt her or anything. We just wanted to help. And so we brought little Kusi home. Uh, and when we did that, um, he and his entire extended family were so surprised that we didn't want anything from them. We just wanted to love their child and they, they really couldn't get their head around it, you know, but we, he would come to visit her and he, he came and I remember him sitting on our, our living room couch and saying to me, um, he said, Cindy, Didi said, when you came and you shared with us about Jesus, I thought, why do I need Jesus? I already have so many gods. Why would I need another God? But when I see the way that you love my little girl, when you have no reason to, I know that your Jesus is real, you know? And so it was that act of mercy, I guess, that, you know, and extending ourselves that to this little girl that opened the door to his heart. And then he brought his whole family and we uh, were able to show the Jesus film to them and share with them. And they, the whole extended family received Christ. And that was how the first little group was started in that slum in their home. And uh, through this baby who then after a few months was fully recovered and we returned her back to her father and to that family. But that's how things got started there. And uh, he then became an elder in the house church there. And that church started multiplying and growing as well. You know, there's a lot of a lot of ups and downs. And uh, we had had people come to the Lord that then betrayed us or, you know, would would. Uh, you know, brought persecution on the other believers. We had lots and lots of ups and downs and um, people that 
uh, showed interest and did well and then would fall away or um, lots of learning ups and downs. But uh, eventually this kind of core group formed who we did, um, we used storytelling with them. So we did a storying approach and we would tell a Bible story, have them repeat the story and then uh, use the discovery questions with that. And um, they began, those stories started to really take root and change worldview um, for them. And then they started to to multiply those groups. And, you know, that particular work didn't grow into a full-blown movement um, of, you know, many generations, but we did see multiplying growth. Um, but at that time, I was asked to lead YWAM's uh, Frontier Missions work for South Asia. And uh, we were we were training, we were uh, wanting to see movements. We, you know, we were learning from David Garrison and, you know, all the, all the great guys like yourself, you know, teaching us and training and, and we really wanted to see movements. And we had seen a few, you know, two or three um, as, as YOM Frontier Missions, but we really hadn't seen the kind of breakthroughs that we were wanting to see. But I guess what we were looking for was, rapid, organic growth, you know, that where without us um, manipulating it or having a lot of control of it, spontaneous multiplication was happening where disciples were going somewhere, starting a group, that group was starting other groups and it was beginning to spread, um, you know, into four or five, six, you know, more generations. Um, without without external assistance or help or even input um, or even their knowledge, you know, that it would just start to, to mushroom and multiply. So you but, had uh, this new new role for, I don't know, what is that, a couple of billion people, South <laughs> Asia? A mm. couple billion people, absolutely overwhelmed and terrified to be in that kind of a role. Um was very much out of my realm. And I went away on a retreat and I, I said, God, what, what in the world, you know, <laughs> I don't know why I'm in this role, but I know you chose me and what is it that you want to do, you know, speak to me. And um, as I was on this retreat up in Sikkim, I felt like the Lord spoke to me from Luke chapter 19, the parable of the minas. And um, and I tell this story at the beginning of my devotional book, Faith to Move Mountains, that I wrote together with Kevin. But I, this parable of the Minas was such a significant story for me. And uh, God just spoke to me through that, how this nobleman, you know, he receives um, his, you know, he, he's going to go away and receive his kingdom. And he calls the servants and the 10 servants come and he gives them each, you know, a mina. And he says, put this to work until I return, you know, and, um, and then he goes away, he comes back, he calls them again. And the three, three of them, we don't know what happened to seven of them, but three of them, not everybody likes to report, right? So <laughs> three of them come and they report. And the one says, master, I took the one that you've given and I've made it 10 and the master says, well done, my good and faithful servant. And he gives him authority over 10 cities. And then the second servant, you know, comes with the five and uh, he says, I took the one I made it five. And he also is given authority over five cities. And then the third servant says, you know, master, I was afraid 
Um, and so I, here's the one, I return it back to you. And God just spoke to me so strongly through that parable that he expects us to multiply what he's given us. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he places people and resources and things in our hands and he wants them to be multiplied when he returns, he wants to hear that we've put it to work and we've multiplied his kingdom. And yet we can't do that apart from him. But I had such a strong sense that God wanted me to believe him for a tenfold multiplication that we would see tenfold increase of the number of believers in the churches that one of them had started there in South Asia. And uh, that was a, you know, a huge step of faith to even start to speak that out and believe for that. But um, at that time, we had about 9,000 believers in the churches that had been started by YWAM in in our region. And uh, I began to ask God for 100,000. Lord, we want, you know, we want to see a tenfold increase of growth. And one of the things that, you know, I've learned since that was actually happening was God was giving me that big, bold vision that was way beyond what I could do myself. And it, it sort of thrust us as a mission and um, myself and the other leaders I was working with into change that we will never see that if we don't change the way we're working. And though we've been talking about church planning movements, we've been talking about multiplication, we're going to have to change the way that we, we operate. And, and what, uh, what, with it, what did those changes end up looking like? Yeah, well, one of the things that we started with, and I'm so grateful to my leader, Kevin, who led us in this, but we we went through a process of really examining our beliefs and our practices. And what, what did we believe about ripe? You know, um, God's word says that Jesus said the harvest is ripe, the labors are few, you know, look to the fields, they're ripe to harvest. Do we really believe that? And do our actions show that we believe that? Or are we just saying we believe that? You know, so we began this process of really examining our beliefs related to our behavior. And um, that process was really significant in releasing uh, new growth and really seeing movements begin to take off through the teams that we were leading and training. Um, Because, yeah, up until then, I think for many of us working among the unreached, we would say things like, um, to to see a Tibetan Buddhist come to Christ, they have to hear the gospel seven times, you know, or to, you know, people, there was just a mentality that it's going to take a long time and the harvest isn't ripe, really, is what our behavior showed and what our words said, though we, we read scripture. So we, we worked hard on some of those beliefs. Um, some of the other things we changed was how we trained people, really looking at training as a process with people as opposed to an event. Uh, up until then, we'd been ha- we had a lot of training events, and YWAM is, is great for training events. Um, but really seeing training as a process of working with people towards multiplication and towards seeing disciple making take off and coach me into a lot more coaching at that time. And, um, but I would say it was the belief change and we, we worked hard on that with um, talking about our beliefs and working on that with our church planning teams. 
and it began to shift our results um, in pretty significant ways um, as those beliefs started to shift. Mm. So what did you see? What was the fruit of that shift in beliefs? Yeah, so um, we started seeing multiplication. We started seeing up until then, a lot of our teams had only seen, you know, daughter churches or maybe granddaughter churches. I think that was kind of the extent of the multiplication that was happening. But um, another another belief we worked on is that everyone can be a disciple maker. You don't need special training. So that was a belief shift that we we worked on, and and we started seeing um, seeing that happen. That people's uh, the churches started to see third and fourth and fifth generation growth. Um, another example we we talked about um, God can use anyone, even women to be disciple makers. And we, um, we trained some of our church planners in how to uh, share your testimony in three minutes and how to train your people how to do that. And so they went back and, and there was just one example of a Nepali uh, brother in North India. He went back and he taught uh, the, the disciples that he was working with. He taught them all the three minute testimony. And there was a lady in his fellowship who had um, never led anyone to the Lord. You know, she came every week, she was faithful, she loved Jesus, but she had never been equipped and trained to share with others. And so she um, she went and uh, attended this training, practiced her three-minute testimony, and within a month, she led 30 people into faith. And so, again, those kinds of principles that everyone can do this, simple training, simple, um, you know, it started to sink in that they didn't have to do a DTS. I mean, as much as why when we love the discipleship training school, not everyone has to do a discipleship training school to become a disciple maker. And we had to really shift that thinking um, that was important for us uh, in our particular background and organization to see that multiplication take off. Um, well, some of our movements in South India started to just explode as trainers. You know, they they got trained in simple ways. They went and trained their disciples. Those disciples trained others, and we saw many, many new groups starting to form. And um, yeah fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh, eighth generation just started to kind of mushroom. So it's really beautiful to see what God did. Uh, so we're we're probably about at 70,000 now. So uh, we're, we're not quite at tenfold increase, but we've come a long way from, from the, um, yeah, 9,000 or so. Uh, so from 9,000 to 70,000 or so, I'd say. How did you change uh, in that whole journey? The pruning processes of God can be painful, and yet he He prunes us, you know, and he, um, like I said, there are a lot of highs and a lot of lows as we went through that whole process of pursuing a dream from God. And there were sacrifices and there were, there were some real challenges, um, relationship challenges that came persecution from inside and from outside and um 
I think, how did I change? I think I'm even more aware of how, what a privilege it is to work with God because it's not, it's not us. (laughs) If anything good happens, it's him, you know? And I think realizing that um, he can use anyone, even someone like me, you know, Um, he really can use any of us that are willing to, to be used by him. So I think faith grew in my heart, but also um, a deep dependency on him that really it has to be God. And um, I think I became more of a a woman of prayer um, on my face a lot (laughs) when we face those challenges and believing that only God could do this. And yet he can. So those are some of the, the changes, I think. Yeah. Well, God always has more. <laughs> He's a God of exponential growth and his vision is always bigger. So, um, yeah, after after eight years serving in that role, I had the privilege of passing the baton to an, an Indian leader that uh, was kind of my Timothy and someone I had trained and loved so much. And that was a real joy. And then um, I took a I took a sabbatical and asked God what was next. And uh, during that sabbatical, he spoke to me about um, starting a blog and starting to write about disciple making movements and the lessons that we've been learning and uh, looking at how we could um, encourage people, especially global South workers um, through that blog. And so I started that and that's been just really exciting to see a lot of people equipped through that blog regularly going out um, and uh, starting to meet people from all over the world and, and be able to have an influence and be able to train and um, mentor them. So, for example, I met a, a young man from Kenya through Twitter, you know, which was so weird. But anyway, he got in touch with me through my blog and things on Twitter. And uh, I started coaching him. And um, he's seen, you know, hundreds of churches started and, uh, you know, multiplication began to happen. So, um, yeah, what am I dreaming about? I'm just really excited. Um, again, this uh, another thing the Lord spoke to me was to start an online course on getting started in disciple making movements. We launched that last year, and we've had 500 students go through that course. And that has just been so fun to see how God has used something like that to equip and um, inspire and help people begin to start movements around the world. So I'm dreaming of, you know, first we were dreaming of tenfold increase. I'm dreaming of 30, 60, 100 fold increase, you know, and really seeing in the next three to five years that we'll see, you know, tens and thousands and hundreds, you know, just that tenfold increase move to hundredfold increase. So it's kind of mind boggling, but that's what I believe God is really wanting to do. And I want to be a part of it. If you're enjoying the Movements Podcast, don't forget to leave a review or spread the word through social media or carrier pigeon. This has been Steve Addison for the Movements Podcast.